their true self is undamaged, un, un, you know, has not been affected by trauma. This community model and the substance can pull back the clouds so that the true light can shine from their being. And when that happens, it's, it's the most amazing experience to be, to be around. It, really uh, it You know, it just, I'm bawling almost every time we have a retreat. Mm. I, I just have not, yeah. it's like, I've never seen miracles like this. I'm seeing Absolutely. hundreds and hundreds yep. of what feels like a miracle. Like yep. you've had, I've had guys, you know, I had one gentleman in his late seventies want to be in a group and, and, uh, and I was like, okay, let's do this. And he had never done psychedelics before. And, mm -hmm. and at the end of it, you know, after the end of 12 weeks and the experience, he said, Peg, for 50 years, I've dealt with trauma from mm -hmm. my past. I've been in therapy for 20, 30 years and nothing touched it. Mm -hmm. This experience, I can sleep for the first time. I wake up with joy for the first time in my life. I feel alive. I feel like I can reach out to other people. I no longer have to live this isolated, shamed life because I think I'm broken. Mm -hmm. I'm not. I'm divine. Like, how, how the hell does that happen? You know, it's just it's shocking. Mm -hmm. For these people, it's it's literally a before and after kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And once you're once you're around that, you're like, oh, I, that's what I got to do with my life. The amazing thing about the mushrooms is that they speak, they talk to you, they will answer questions, carry on conversations. Psilocybin just pulls up a chair on the porch and puts its feet up. Today, Eric speaks with Peg Peters. Peters is a vibrant and uplifting presence of a rich journey in spirituality and personal growth. His life has been a quest for a deeper connection with the divine, leading him from an evangelical background to exploring broader spiritual horizons. A former ordained minister and philosophy teacher, he co-founded Nexus, an inclusive, non-dogmatic community, and has been deeply involved in justice issues, including empowering women in Ethiopia through education and clean water. Peter's experience with psilocybin profoundly impacted him, reigniting his passion for a more inclusive and expansive understanding of God. He now fosters a psychedelic Christian renewal movement. Peter's is insightful and effortlessly genuine. He and Eric talk about walking away from Christian ministry into kindness through visionary medicine, the indigenous wisdom to maximize integration through preparation, Peter's personal practice with psilocybin and how it connects to his personal spiritual practice, and other topics. You're listening to Psilocybin Says. To support it, join the conversation in the YouTube comments. Subscribe on YouTube and podcasts, and stay connected on Instagram and TikTok. And now, please welcome... Peg Peters. Peg Peters, welcome to Civil Seven Says. Hi, Eric. Good to be here. Yeah, man. So, like I was just kind of getting into, I'm really eager mm -hmm. to talk about psychedelic spirituality. And also, will say, I'm so grateful just to be doing an interview. I, this is something that I, I love almost as much as facilitating Civil Seven Sessions, mm -hmm. uh, talking to new people about their work that I think yours is some pretty exciting work. Uh, so I'm really, really happy to be here sitting here with you today and mm. appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. Oh, thanks, Eric. No, it's, uh, you're, you're right. And I think um, for me, what, I'm, what I get excited about this conversation is you're right. I think most of the content that I 
that I'm that I encounter in in the psychedelic space is is coming from either a therapeutic lens or um, research or you know or or kind of a, a different ceremonial you know framework right so it, it could be ceremonial but it'd be like hey we're you know, shamans from Peru, and we're talking about um, ayahuasca, and it's like, okay, that's really interesting, but it's a little different than the communities that maybe you and I are kind of finding ourselves in, and so um, sometimes I feel like an outsider, right, in the psychedelic space, um, because, you know, I'm coming at it with a certain lens. Uh, um, yes, we can talk about the group work we're doing, which is really trying to bring the best of building community and building spiritual containers on uh, doing that in a safe um, trauma-informed model. But I still come with this, my background, right? My background is, is, is I came from Christianity and I uh, was an ordained minister. And for <clears throat> many years of my life, that was, that informed me. And I left that, I walked away from that in my own, my own faith journey. We can get into that. Um, but uh, but then coming back to it without just feeling embarrassed to call myself a Christian in the psychedelic space mm-hmm. with all of its baggage, right, and all of its all of that stuff. And so I've been I've been learning to go, okay, what can I what what elements of the Christian symbols can I hold on to, and what do I need to let go, and then how do I how do I do this. In- in a psychedelic community that maybe not uh, is a little bit nervous about Christian symbols because they're patriarchy. They are, you know, colonial. Uh, they are deeply racist, you know. So we have to own all that baggage and yet try to reform and have, have some renaissance within the community. And that's the struggle. So I'm looking forward to having a conversation about those ideas. Well, talk, tell me about this kind of return to and to what extent do you feel like you have kind of returned to Christianity? Cause I'm, that's something I've been, I'm not sure that I'm able to say that, mm. but there are certainly like at the same time, like I recognize that the Christ within all of us. And mm. so I, I, am I a Christian? I think in ways I say yes. And in ways I, I mm. say no. So can I talk about if you would, your return to that, mm perspective and like what you have adopted what you haven't and how that's mm. kind of how that's evolving yeah i know like and and what a great um i mean that's i guess we're starting right there right like that's mm-hmm. <laughs> which is like uh, which in. is good and we can circle back to our mail mail Bunch of other yeah, yeah, too, yeah. But, I, I hope um, I hope this is the first of several conversations for us. Actually, great so. <laughs> man, I love it. No, I think it's we we've got to stick together and and mm. uh, and and have these conversations. Uh, I mean, um, yeah. So I'm I'm in Van- just outside of Vancouver, Canada, and. Um, uh, and I, this is where I've been, uh, you know, born and raised in, in this area. Um, I'm out on a farm here. My, my wife and I have been married for 32 years. We've raised uh, four daughters. They're all in their 20s uh, and launched them. And, uh, and it's really, that's kind of how we, you know, if you'd say, what's your origin story of how you got into psychedelics? It, it was really our, our oldest daughter. Um, uh, our oldest daughter, uh, unbeknownst to us, cause we were, you know, I was, it was in ministry and was a big say no to drugs world in the eighties and nineties that I came out of. Uh, and yet she had Crohn's disease and, and was really pain, a lot of pain, um, in and out of the hospital and, uh, can't go to school. Like it was just really traumatic for her. And, uh, she was reading Doors of Perception, uh, and reading a lot of the research in, in the two thousands that was coming out and, uh, 
decided to have her own high dose psilocybin experience unbeknownst to us. I mean, she mm. was 17 and, and did it with a friend. Um, and after, I mean, we didn't know what happened, but after the next day she came to us and sat down with us and said, mom and dad, I want to have a conversation. I don't want you to be reactive. Um, you know, in the sense of like, can you take a breath? I did, you know, a really big dose of mushrooms yesterday and it changed my life. And, and we were like, what are you talking about? Like, uh, uh, what? And, uh, and I said, what do you mean it changed your life? She said, I, I met the divine and she, and she helped guide me, you know, she, first of all. Right. Uh, and I'm like, what, you know, and, uh, and, and, and she reoriented my entire perspective uh, toward my disease, uh, toward Crohn's, uh, this is not something I have to fight. I have to learn to work with this. And we just were like, this wisdom that this 17 year old daughter was giving to us and we could see it in her life. We could see it immediately. We could see the downline. I mean, that's been, that was over 10 years ago now. And, you know, after she left, after I kind of stopped, like you could have died. And what if the drugs were tainted and all of this stuff oh, that a dad, that. informed father would have, right. <laughs> feel that. Um, and yet I couldn't, I couldn't dispute the fact that her life was changed, that she did have a divine encounter mm. and it changed her and it has, how, and it still, still does. Did, what, what allowed you to not simply dismiss it as a drug induced experience? Mm. Yeah. Great. Great. As, uh, I guess because I could see the downline effect, right? It's one thing to have, you know, a, a, a mountaintop experience. That was amazing. And then uh, it's like, oh, whatever. Next day, life is as, as usual, right? And, and I, I've, I've been around, uh, you know, group work and, and ministry work enough to see people have big experiences. And then the next day, they're back at work or whatever, and life's kind of back into its ruts. Um, but I could see something had shifted in her, and it wasn't really until probably even a year later that, you know, we kind of revisited the conversation mm. and said, hmm, does that, that experience you had, uh, Milan is her name, um, Milan, is that, does that still, you know, where does that sit with you now? And she's like, oh, that was the most profound experience of my life, and it reorients me every day. And I'm like, okay, whoa, 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 that, that is an amazing statement. I've got to explore this. Like, this isn't something you can just dismiss as a kind of a one-off thing. This is my daughter that I live with, and she was dealing with a, a disease in her body where she felt pain, chronic pain, you know? I remember moments, I mean, I have times as a father, I came home one time, she was crumpled on the ground in our kitchen. She couldn't get up because the, the severe pain and cramping in her stomach because of the Crohn's was so bad. I had to carry her as a, as a, you know, as a 16-year-old up to her bed and looking for some pain relief. This is the woman that had said, now I'm, I'm calming. I've got a new approach to how I'm going to eat. I've got a new approach to how I'm going to work with this. And I've got this lightness and a connection with the divine that's helping me find peace uh, in each moment. That's not just a drug-induced experience. Mm -hmm. That's a transformative experience mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. changes someone's life going forward. Um, you know, that's, that's just not, I was at a party and it was really fun, you know. This was something transformed in how she related to herself, to others, and to the divine. And I was so curious on, is this something that can be repeated or is that just kind of a, an off chance thing that she experienced? And that's when I started to come across the research from, from Johns Hopkins and their mystical experience clinical trial when they were looking at end of life cancer patients and they were saying 85% 
of the individuals, regardless of their spiritual background, were having a mystical experience. Mm -hmm. Defined, as Bill Richards talks about, mm -hmm. these are the criteria of what a mystical experience looks like, and we can replicate that with almost certainty. And I was like, I want that. I want what she's having. Because I was a minister that had walked away from the church and felt like the heavens were dead. And that all my prayers and all my encounters with the divine throughout my entire life were just, you know, some kind of whatever, you know, it was just inside of me, but there was nothing real in it. And I wanted a, you know, a Saul on the road to Damascus kind of experience. I wanted a Moses at the burning bush. I wanted a moment of transfiguration in my own life. And I just thought that was for people in the Old Testament or from back then. And here, a daughter in my house had this. Mm -hmm. And I wanted it. Mm, wow. All right. I want to, I want to continue the Christian journey, but I can't not ask how, if you're, if you're comfortable sharing uh, how she is relating to her condition now, how has this changed? Yeah. 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 I, I would say, I mean, I was just actually with her this morning. Uh, she's uh, she's an RMT uh, massage therapist. And, uh, um, and so I got to have a massage with her and, um, I mean, it's an amazing, I mean, she's this divine spiritual person uh, and she just has this peace and lightness about her. Um, the way she moves through the universe, her Crohn's isn't gone. It's not mm -hmm. like that, like, you know, you know, fixed her Crohn's disease. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and when you listen to people like Gabor Matei, who, you know, is, uh, uh, is from Vancouver and is a psychologist, really, um, really talking about how we, the head heart issue, right? That, that we have this mind and we have our, our body and our body has this deep truth in it. And it's, it's you know, he, he in, a, in his most recent book called The Myth of Normal, Gabor Mate uh, kind of talks about two different concepts. He says, there's this deep sense that we have a need for attachment. And when we're growing up, we would do anything to feel attached, that we belong, that, that our mom and dad love us and we will do whatever it takes to belong because that's how we need to survive. But inside of every human being is also this parallel drive for authenticity, for self-expression, for a sense of who am I in the world? I've got my own values, my own opinions. And it's in many of our homes, particularly in religious homes, we will sacrifice authenticity for belonging and connection. Mm. And so we, we then mute our own sense of ourselves because we have to, you know, attach. And so... You know, Gabor Mate says this creates that dysfunction when a child can't really feel like they can express themselves, creates a dis-ease inside of them. And he talks about the rise of, of autoimmune diseases, your body attacking itself because of this conflict. And he, he, he rests a lot of the autoimmune diseases in this kind of trauma, in this, uh, this kind of the inability to be authentic with yourself uh, and with others. And in, in essence, you've kind of silenced your voice in order to fit in. Mm -hmm. And I find that with Milan, now that she's got this voice and she's got a sense of she knows who she is, she is learning to work with her disease and manage it um, through meditation and mindfulness and, and, you know, good plant-based medicine and, uh, and all, and, you know, and just learning to listen. And so I would say, is she, is it perfect? No, but she is so attuned to her body now that she knows exactly how to work with it and listen to it. And she would say her work with plant medicine, and now she's one of our facilitators, 
at gathering groups, this organization that my wife and I founded, she works with us. And so she leads groups through this process, this 12-week process that we have, that we prepare people for altered state work mm. uh, for eight weeks then they come and have a retreat, and then we integrate that experience uh, for the next four weeks. So she's doing that. So she gets to teach how she does that and works with that. So I, I would say this has been a um, – we're spending a lot of time on this, on, on, on this issue of my daughter, but it has been foundational for us. So I'm really glad that we started this. And you can't, you can't turn away from an experience that's right in front of you, right? Mm -hmm. This was what was real. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and I think it really highlights how – um, seeing the change in others is so often what inspires mm. folks to seek something that they would have normally not trusted or not had any kind of even even been on their radar. Right. Mm. And that's what I, I've seen so much over the years that people come to me saying, I saw how this changed yeah. my spouse and I need I need mm -hmm. this, you know, and so. Uh, yeah, it's it's relevant for sure. So let's let's get back let's get back to the to the Christian journey though because this is so interesting to me. And mm. another question that people have often asked me is, "Will psychedelics make me lose my religion?" Right? Mm. And I'm curious, wow. did what was there any role that psilocybin had played mm -hmm. in you in moving yeah. away from Christianity, or did that start mm. before your introduction to the mushroom? Yeah, what a, what a great, I, I love that question. I'm going to reiterate it and, and just kind of, because I want to feel into that, right? Will, will psychedelics uh, cause me to lose my faith, my, my religion? Um, for, for me, um, the, the evangelical church did that to me. Like it, it caused me to lose <laughs> You know, <laughs> you know, I was raised Catholic just to kind of like give you yeah, a taste. Yeah, of that so I, I, I was in a fundamentalist evangelical community um, at church. And um, and so being part of that, that kind of deep sense of certainty, uh, fundamentalism that I'm right and everyone else is wrong. Uh, that's the that's a caustic worldview. Right. Because it can it's it's and it's inherently violent because it says it, I mean, it's at the core of what's going on in the Middle East. Absolutely. You know, it's yeah. this idea of like, I'm right and you're wrong. And in, in its worst attempts, it's now I'm right. And by the sword, I'm mm -hmm. going to kill you because you're anathema, you're a heretic or whatever. And so even in my, you know, I have to actually destroy you because I'm so right. I mean, that's mm -hmm. its most violent mm -hmm. attempts. And we see that in fundamentalism of every stripe, right? Yes. Um, it's not just Christian fundamentalism or Islamic fundamentalism. We see this in, you know, in hardcore Judaism, uh, and it's a t you know attempt to like we will put settlements wherever we need to because we it's right you know it's this this certainty and I think it's that certainty that really messed me up mm -hmm. because what happens with certainty is it others everybody else it says I'm right and you're wrong and when you other other people now you're othering other ways that you your blind spots are also othered. Right. Mm -hmm. Because I don't want to listen to, you know, and for instance, you know, for, for me, one of the biggest shifts that's happened is such an openness to the divine feminine. Mm -hmm. So my mm -hmm. understanding of faith, it, it didn't get destroyed. It got destroyed by fundamentalism. I walked away from my ordination. I left the church that I was pastoring because they, they wouldn't ordain women. They wouldn't, uh, you know, they, they wouldn't bless same-sex union. These are, these are values of human beings that are in my women. 50% of every human population are outed as other. They are not as spiritual, you know, or if you are, you know, attracted to the same gender, you are othered. God doesn't love you. I, I, I couldn't be around that othering 
because well, what, of it. Where was the yeah. wake up? What caught, what brought on the, the, was it just a gradual kind of dissonance or? Yeah. I mean, there, there's, um, um, you know, we can look into, you know, what were the particulars that kind of really pushed me? I was, I was teaching in a, in a Christian university out here in British Columbia. Um, and I was having students come to my, I was teaching philosophy and religious studies. And I've, this is in the nineties, but, um, I was having students come out to me and say, Hey, I've been kicked out of my home. I came out as gay and my parents kicked me out and I, I'm living in my car. Um, and I'm like, what? This is insane. And then as I, be I began to do a, a support group for, for you know, uh, uh, gay students on campus. And when that got out, you know, I, I had to have a meeting with the, the president of the university. I mean, I'm just a new peon, you know, teacher in my 30s. And you're like, you are not allowed to have this kind of build this alliance on, we, we are taking a stand against these kind of people and you are supporting them. And then I'm like this, I don't want to be on your side. You know, I don't want to be on the side of the president of some Christian university that's going to continue to other people. And so that, you know, the, this was going on. I was getting friction in, in, I was in a large kind of mega church uh, with thousands of people and I was teaching and preaching and I was challenging notions of the doctrine of hell. And going, how can we believe in a divine deity that is not even as loving as I feel? Like, <laughs> you know, like I would be more inclusive than the God that you just created, right? right. You are going to, you, you know. Oh, no, wait, the God that you created. Yeah, you know, Bingo. so this is, I, I, so I'm. I'm, I'm, you know, I, you can't just be part of a big kind of Christian denomination and ask these kinds of questions from a pulpit to 3000 people and, and not think there's going to be a downline in consequence, right? The denomination had meetings and I had to be brought in and, you know, a big kind of a heresy trial kind of stuff that begins to unfold for me. So all of that then caused me to leave and, um, and said, okay, I'm out. I got to do something else. And uh, so I actually got into uh, broadcast and, and television and, and uh, got into film and documentary filmmaking and, um, and some other stuff. But there was still this deep spiritual longing in me. And just not going to church anymore, it, it, you know, it, it satisfied my, that feeling of no longer wanting to be around that kind of religion. But it still had this... I still had a longing to, I'm going to say this word, to pastor people, to, mm -hmm. to kind of create safe spaces that could help people feel loved and included and healing. Those were things. My, my wife and I uh, have always been those kind. That's what our home has always been. And so, you know, we ended up, I ended up starting a, a small little uh, kind of a Christian community called Nexus. Uh, and we ran that for about 13 years, which is just an inclusive, non-dogmatic Christian community that was really into outreach and uh, working with social justice issues. And uh, so I did that for a while and that, that seemed to satisfy, but even that kind of had its uh, uh, just challenges as far as like, how do we raise money? You know, when you don't force people with guilt to show up every week. Well, how are they, where are you going to raise your money from? You know, and people that, you know, it's just going to be because they want to donate to that. And uh, it's hard to create without guilt and shame in a church. It's hard to keep the money coming in. Right. And uh, so we didn't, we refused to do that. And so it ended up kind of dying out just before COVID. Uh, and then um, subsequent, I still feel like this longing, this calling. I've been now moved into psychedelics over the last five years and, and really started to build a, a model that, uh, a group work model that I think can be really 
powerful, not just for clinical trials, but for uh, actually building community uh, in any community that you would be in. How do you build a psychedelic spiritual community? And I, I found some kind of, found some ways forward on that. And so I've been doing that. But even this week, I just uh, put a note out to a Facebook group and said, hey, I kind of want to re-engage what a spiritual community could look like. Uh, and those of you who are interested, I'd love to have a conversation. And we had about 30 people show up online and started that conversation up again. So who knows where that's that's going. So you're you're getting me live trying to navigate and figure out how do I hold the tension of of the idea of spirituality with a background of Christianity and a new insight that's coming from plant medicine as a really powerful entheogenic spiritual tool for transformation and healing. How do we bring these worlds together? That's where I'm at. I'm on the front edge of that conversation right now. And so what does that look like in your personal practice? Mm. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's, there's, I, I, there's a personal, like, what does it look like on a day-to-day? -day? You know, what is meditation, mindfulness mm -hmm. practices? What do those kind of look like for me? And um, I've been, um, I found kind of my um, biggest growth has been by working with some of my indigenous brothers and sisters here uh, in British Columbia. I happen to live just outside of Vancouver on uh, the First Nations land of the Matsqui and Sumath First Nation people. They're part of what's called the Stolo people. They have been here for thousands of years and their land has been stolen and taken away. And I'm, I'm realizing that as I'm drawn into this plant medicine work that I cannot avoid the fact that these plants have come to us from containers. They didn't just drop in from outer space. You know, it, they didn't just get invented by Albert Hoffman when he synthesized LSD in 1942. You know, it, these plants have come to us from these different containers and all of them have come in from indigenous practices, indigenous use. And so as I've tried to be really... Um, honest and with integrity, I've reached out to my indigenous brothers and sisters whose land I live on and all around me. And I've been asking, help me. I do not want to appropriate these medicines. These are, these are plant medicines and, and, and I want to learn how to work with them in kind of indigenous ways. And so they've drawn me in and have partnered with me. And I've just actually had a beautiful experience a couple of weeks ago of, of leading a 12-week group with a hereditary chief uh, from the Sham First Nation close by here. And we got to run this retreat uh, in kind of tandem together with these men, these men that were seeking healing and connection. And he brought his deeply indigenous spiritual uh, uh, methods in uh, as we opened the ceremony space up with drumming uh, and smudging and, and kind of, uh, and some prayers. And I brought in some of mine and it was this beautiful container uh, of trust that we had built for eight weeks for these men and then to drop into the ceremony together and then to integrate that. And so I found that from that experience, I really learned a lot about how to work with plant medicines because the way they kind of invite me in to work with them is to say, Peg, in order to work with these plant medicines, you have to understand how we have worked with plants for thousands of years. And the starting place is to recognize that plants have something to teach us. And so there's a reverence that we bring 
and that these are living entities. There's the spirit of the mushroom. And there, it's not just a molecule like Tylenol, you know, that there's a, there's a way to work with this energy that, that you know, and, and as a divine entity almost that you would have reverence for the spirit of the mushroom. Mm -hmm. And the spirit of a mushroom has a way that it wants to be worked with. It, it works best in certain places and it doesn't work better. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work as well in other settings, right? So I'm like, that's interesting. That it's not just like, you know, when you test another drug, right? When they do clinical trials, it's just this diagnosis, it's this drug and let's look at it, right? Mm -hmm. We are doing something completely different with psilocybin and these, and these different, these different molecules. We know set and setting is absolutely crucial. What does that mean? It means that the intentionality and the, and the sacred space in which we create have everything to do with how this plant is going to activate or work. Well, that seems woo-woo, you know, that seems weird. That's not how science is done. And yet there's no way around it. This is exactly true, that all psychedelics work with set and setting. And so we are learning from our indigenous brothers and sisters how to create the safest group container so that people's nervous systems can be regulated prior to moving into altered state experiences. Mm -hmm. And that to me is the biggest growth that I've had is pivoting my, uh, my passion for integration to passion for preparation. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. that's the biggest mm -hmm. shift I've had in the last oh. five years I'm is that, that integration will happen naturally when people are prepared well in a community. I love that. We, we do not speak nearly enough about preparation uh, in, in, in this whole, in this work. Uh, mm. Yeah. So anyway, so that's kind of a, a, we can go back into my own personal practice of, of, you know, developing a relationship with the mushroom, um, which is like, it's like, yeah, how would you develop a relationship with a person? Well, you kind of slowly get to know him or her and you'd have moments of connection and, and listening and dialogue. And so that's kind of what I've begun to enter into with the sacred mushroom is I see it as an entheogen. I believe it manifests the divine for anyone that, that the, this entheogen uh, is so much more powerful than any cracker or wafer that I place on someone's tongue for communion and say, this is the body of Christ. You know, mm -hmm. when I say that, I just go, well, it's just kind of a symbol, you know, it's like, you know, cause I'm not Catholic. Right. And even the Catholics that I talk to go, transubstantiation what is that it turns into the body and blood of the divine mm -hmm. that just seems weird it seems, feels mm -hmm. like cannibalism or something right and yet there's something deeply sacred and to say here is the mushroom take this take and eat of the divine the divine will enter you you will manifest the divine within you i mean that is a fascinating uh kind of way to think about the the you know entheogenic practice of communion as a sacrament right and so i'm I'm trying to develop a daily, a weekly, a monthly, and a quarterly uh, way of engaging with the mushroom in kind of these seasonal uh, times. So trying to do four, uh, for me as a leader, I'm trying to stay close to the mushroom for four times a year um, in kind of larger dose mm -hmm. uh, and community. And then uh, I, I, do, I do microdosing. 
uh, and I and I do uh, quite a bit of meditation with with my microdose, uh, and uh, and then I hold space. Obviously, we do a lot of retreats, so we we our group work provides an opportunity to sit with the sacred mushroom and be able to serve it. And so we're, we're, we do that uh, about two, twice a month um, for our retreats. So those are some of the practices. And I can I mean, we can dive into that, what that looks like um, to develop well, a kind of a, a meditative practice with, I, the, with microdosing. But yeah. I, lo- I think most importantly or most relevant that you point out uh, is the kind of the division between the, the active engagement with communing, consuming the mushroom itself, and then the daily practice, the meditation mm. and all the other stuff, right? And what's interesting to me about that is within the context of working with this this plant, this organism, this partner, is that your daily practice is both your preparation and your integration. Mm. It is it is the it is the process. And that as well, you know, when we talk about integration as this kind of it's a thing that you do because you had this experience mm. rather than thinking in terms of how, what are you doing daily to continue this process? Mm. Because it does not end, you know, sure. No. I'm sure you see yeah. this, that people yeah. have, people have an experience with mushrooms maybe one time. And just like your daughter, I mean, a year later, mm-hmm. she's talking about how every single day she thinks about it. She yeah. had some kind of innate intentionality that seems most of us maybe don't have no it requires mm-hmm. a discipline it mm-hmm. requires where yeah. the community becomes so valuable in helping to kind of maintain that accountability and discipline and encouragement what within your retreats mm-hmm. are, are you you know you say you're you're building community so how mm-hmm. how do the retreats feed into a larger community or can you can you kind of talk yeah. about that entire container a little bit yeah. Okay. Well, that's a, I mean, that's a, that's a work in progress. Um, mm-hmm. um, but that's kind of the goal, right? I think the goal is, <clears throat> so, I mean, to, to kind of deep dive into the model that, that I'm, I'm trying to work with is, um, so I, I learned this model, it's a resilience based model and it, and it came out of, um, research by a lady named Dr. Shannon Danes on Vancouver Island university. What's resilience? What you, can you can you define yeah, a resilience? resilience? Yeah. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll let me t- let me let me I'll back up. Sure. So she's working with nurse. She's a nursing professor and working with nurses and training nurses. And so during COVID, what she noticed early on was that these trained nurses from the university would come out, and the chaos and the stress were so crazy in these hospitals that these young nurses who had just been kind of thrown into the chaos were like leaving, going, "I can't handle it. it's too much," and they were leaving. And so if you think about we need these frontline workers in the midst of a pandemic and we're losing them because it's just too much going on for them. And so she said, is there any way that I could build a model, a program that could give them a sense of a window of tolerance? Can, can we increase their window of tolerance for stress and anxiety in their system before they're tapped to tap out? Right. That's that was the premise. Can, is that possible? Can how do we build? resilience in in people right and so uh that was kind of her main goal um and so she she developed this model of a 12-week community of practice that used two facilitators uh it didn't have to be therapists but often there was you know the therapists were kind of trained in some of this work that she was doing Mm -hmm. and they would meet together once a week online 
um, for 90 minutes and they would work through a community of practice, not where a not, you're not learning anything. You're learning to show up vulnerably in a community, in a container of eight others and two facilitators. And you're practicing the ability to sit in uncomfortable emotions with one another, both your own and other people's without fixing, without, uh, problem solving, without therapizing, it's learning to sit and create an embodied response. And so much of the research was based in what's called polyvagal theory. And um, <clears throat> this piece with, uh, it's called Roots to Thrive, which is this organization that they founded to train, train this model. And what they, what they discovered as they started doing clinical research at the university was they did find a way to be able to use ketamine uh, as you, you know about ketamine, they would use three ketamine uh, experiences over the course of 12 weeks as a way to, peep, to get people out of their brains, out of their kind of their default mode network, this busy mind that we have here to get them into a kind of a wider mind. Ketamine is a dissociative, so it kind of mm -hmm. brings you out of your body. And it's in that process of coming back into your body after that hour and a half, you come back in that you can feel almost like a new way that you could re-enter your life. You could begin to have some insights on, whoa, that's no longer serving me. And so as a community, they could help one another kind of reintegrate these kind of stresses and, and, and fears that people have. And so I got trained in this. I brought a physician, uh, some therapists over. We got trained in this model. And I began to use ideas from that. We were using ketamine in the beginning, working with a physician. But then said, I really think psilocybin, because I'd been working with psilocybin privately, <clears throat> I think psilocybin would actually be even a more powerful tool at building community and connection. And so we pivoted, took the 12-week model, began to tweak some of the questions and the design of how we work with it, and started using psilocybin. One retreat of psilocybin after eight weeks, and the results that we were getting, we were tracking using something called Quantified Citizen, which is an app where we measure mental health conditions, anxiety, stress, sleep disorders, all sorts of battery of tests before you enter our program, and then after 12 weeks, and then a six-month follow-up, and then one year. And we want to look at, are people sleeping better? Are, are, does depression go down? Does anxiety drop? What happens, right? And our numbers, what we were getting, and, and again, we've We've done now about 30 groups, so we're well over 250 individuals have gone through so far. And we're at like 87% of people say they no longer suffer with anxiety. Uh, about 82% no longer uh, are depressed. Uh, we're up about 93% of people have increased ability to sleep. Um, and so it's just like, I mean, these are the kind of medical uh, outcomes of, of some of this. So we're talking like the, the stats we were getting were really powerful. And, um, and, and what, I, what I discovered was that the, the, the magic was not in the psilocybin. And I, I got to say that really, really clearly, that the results that we were getting were not being attributed when I, when I did these exit interviews with people. Um, what was happening was that it's the group container itself mm -hmm. that people were feeling seen, feeling heard, feeling validated, feeling that they're not alone. It's that that yeah. began to open them up to themselves. Yep. And even prior to, we started then changing our, our metrics where we would take a snapshot of these mental health conditions a day before the retreat. So no one's even done any medicine. It's just mm -hmm. eight weeks of a trauma-informed resilience group, mm -hmm. and people were saying, oh, man, I'm sleeping better. 
I, I feel seen. I feel loved. I feel like, you know, people aren't here to judge me. And I realize that this is what human beings are longing for more yes. than anything else. 100%. Is can I be in a community of people that make me feel safe, that make me feel like I belong, that allow me to feel like I'm being heard? Because when that happens, there is an inner healing intelligence that then can, can come online. We don't feel like the world is dangerous, that I'm alone, that I'm isolated, that I'm always in fear. And it's just what happens is our nervous system resets. Mm. And polyvagal theory talks about we, can, we do this as social creatures when we're in community. When we can see each other in a circle and we can do this online with this technology, which is stunning, we can co-regulate nervous systems using online technology. That has never been done before in human history. That you can co-regulate a group of people using Zoom technology is unheard of. That's possible now with the technology mm -hmm. we have today. And now we can, it's no longer you are in the middle of nowhere and you can never find community. We can build online communities using this technology at that, then bring them to a site. You know, one, they can fly in for a retreat. You can do a gathering group anywhere in the world. And we have facilitators that will facilitate these groups. All you got to be able to do is be able to get to our retreat center here in Vancouver for your retreat. And, uh, and then you can go back online and integrate that back into this community. And after the 12 weeks is done, we offer alumni groups and we offer um, like in-person retreats for alumni. Uh, we, off, we have a retreat in Mexico now. We've got retreats here in Vancouver. We have a retreat out in Toronto. Um, and so we're building different retreat sites uh, that, that people can experience kind of the community, um, not just for retreats, but for mindfulness meditation and for lots of other offerings that we're, that we're putting out there for our alumni. And so I think there's, you know, as you teach people this language of being heart open uh, and, uh, and authentic with one another, they begin to find each other. And we, can, we create a space where you can find one another and say, hey, you may have friends at work. You may have friends you watch movies with. But this is a group of people that once a week for 90 minutes, you can drop in and feel seen and heard in ways that you don't have that any other place in your life. That's what good looks like, I think. Yeah, I love it. I love it in a lot of ways. Sounds similar to what we're doing with Sanctuary. How, yeah, tell how me are, a little bit about Sanctuary. I, I well, really want to hear we, more. I want to. Can we, can we go into the the spirituality of your program yeah. first yeah. I'm, we can talk some about sanctuary for sure but uh how are you because the way you described it it sounds sounds more like an intentional wellness community yeah but i suspect that there is uh, a spiritual lens to it can you talk about that or yeah that um, <clears throat> no it's uh it's good we have three values at, at gathering um we value safety and so that's, we draw the best of trauma-informed models about how we screen people, about how we use nurses for our intake, how we use clinical therapists for, um, for a lot of our facilitation work. So we try to do the best of, of kind of the Western safety lens. And that's our first value. And then we on, the second one is we honor spirit. And what we mean by that is that um, we honor these indigenous uh, land-based uh, practices that are deeply entrenched in land uh, and these ancient traditions that have really understood that these medicines open us up to spirit. And we cannot bracket that out and say, no, we're just a secular organization that doesn't have anything to do with that. We need to say we honor that. We honor that if we're going to do this work, 
we have to pay tribute or some openness to a, a spirit. And so we've called it spirit, which is a big enough kind of catch-all. You can say creator, you can say divine, you can say ground of being, you can say cosmic Christ, <clears throat> you can say, you know, great Brahma. Like you can, you, you put the words that you want in there, mm -hmm. but it's something larger than us. And there's a, we call it love or presence. And so we need to honor that and cultivate that as part of our work. And our last one is we honor community as the foundation in how we heal. As human beings, we're not lone individuals that are looked at in these isolated, we pluck people out of systems and processes and try to fix them. Then we put them back into broken systems, mm -hmm. broken families, broken capitalist consumptive systems mm -hmm. that re-traumatize them. And we say, well, how come it's not working? Well, <laughs> maybe we need to build new families, new ways of being married, new understandings of what it means to parent, new ways of doing spiritual community again uh, that are not exclusive and, you know, shame-based, but are open and healing. And so that, you know, that's, those are our values. And so how we kind of bring that in and what that means is we're just starting to develop that. Uh, mm -hmm. And so um, we've drawn a lot from our indigenous brothers and sisters to help us teach these kind of these ideas in our, in our model. But I'm also becoming more bold at bringing some of the, um, yeah, some of the ancient practices that have from, been from, you know, Christian communities prior to, you know, Christianity become the world religion in the 400s. Mm -hmm. You know, we had these early Christian communities that came together to, to serve meals to one another, to visit people in prisons, to support one another. And it feels like there's something there uh, in a really practical kind of way that these, uh, these plant medicines can not just give us these incredible altered state experiences of the divine to help us heal here, but it can help reorient us to become agents of love and light out into our world. And I think that's where we really heal, is when we align ourselves with other people who want to be healers and givers of love and light into our, the communities in which we are, are practically living in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to figure that out. What are you guys are doing? What? Tell me a little about how you guys do that work. I'd love to riff off of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess you know, it's I think it's maybe helpful to give a little bit of background that you know we we learned in Jamaica. We did I did a lot of work in Jamaica. I started the retreat down there and I uh, worked with over a thousand people and you know saw very clearly that the mushrooms uh, had a limited limited capacity and that it was the community that was the mm. the, the the real glue that held it all together and recognizing that when we when we left that work um decided that we would um present it in a spiritual way you know that's been my practice for 20 something years was that this is primarily a spiritual experience and when i was a child i studied uh just through you know through my local library in small town kentucky indigenous practices and read about peyote and and mm -hmm. that seemed more true to me even at age seven than the catholic church mm -hmm. that i was a part of um <clears throat> and so while we're not overtly um kind of applying any indigenous practices uh and don't have any direct affiliation with indigenous indigenous groups there's not really any here locally in kentucky anyway uh, but it, it's something that i am uh, certainly open to exploring, but I'll, I have been really intentional in first and foremost trying to create something that uh, was was a, 
not just approachable, but that fit within the modern perspective. Mm -hmm. Now, I do believe that working with uh, entheogens will eventually take us back towards indigenous practices. You know, I think if we continue uh, working with psychedelics like we are and it grows and grows, then it won't be long before we're, you know, wearing animal skins and painting our faces, quite honestly. <laughs> I'm sure, you know, it's, it's just a natural part of becoming connected with nature is that you want to embody it, you want to embrace it. Mm. And so, you know, there's a, an interesting conversation to be had around appropriation and all that, but I, yep. I really, I, I uh, as much as it has sometimes rubbed people the wrong way, I, I, I do classify myself as a, a new indigenous is how I think about it. Mm. You know, I, I am a, a uh, product of this land. And so I think that we all have that right to claim our own divine heritage as we are, as we were dumped out. But there is there's oh, a thousand, so much wisdom in those traditions mm. that have brought those plants forward. And I feel like, you know, the psychedelic community in large part pays a lot of lip service to that. Mm. But we uh, there's there's a lot of, uh, you know, the fact that Oregon is <clears throat> we were part of that conversation mm -hmm. in, the, in the Oregon legalization, trying to advise some of that. And, uh, you know, there's, there's again, a lot of lip service towards, um, you know, the indigenous and, and, and whatnot and how we have to pay homage to that. And then at the same time, they're going to require uh, every three pounds of mushrooms grown be put through some kind of uh, testing to ensure purity and psilocybin content. And, and when the indigenous wisdom is that, uh, you better be careful who touches your sacrament, mm. right? Because they impart part of their energy into that so um mm -hmm. you know yeah i just uh in, in 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 that on that topic i feel like it's uh there's a lot of nuance there as with all of this and, and it's mm -hmm. something that definitely deserves an, an extended conversation and i certainly in none of this work have all the answers i don't think i have many of the answers quite honestly which you know in sanctuary what we're doing there in terms of building community i, I find more and more i have no idea what I'm mm. doing. Uh, what, what's so, working though, Eric, like what is like, what's bringing people out and what would you say, Hey, this is what I get most excited about in, in sanctuary. Oh my goodness. Um, what right now I'm most excited about is, um, helping others learn how to work with the sacrament on their own. While there is an enormous, enormous value in the group, uh, sacrament experience. And we do facilitate those kinds of experiences, group retreats and whatnot not to the extent that we did in Jamaica, because um, what we've been really working towards is empowering individuals to be able to first and foremost cultivate and develop a relationship with the, sac with the sacrament. Mm -hmm. And then as time goes on and that relationship deepens, bringing that into um, more communal spaces, uh, there is a lot of value, I believe, in kind of learning, gradually learning how you relate to uh, the mushroom before then coming into a group where you may or may not know anybody now those scenarios. And so, you know, I've, I've specialized in, in very high dose work over the years. I don't know what y'all are, are working with there, but the ceremonies that I led in Jamaica, which weren't really ceremonies, I've strayed away from that language and, and still kind of do I generally mm. call them sessions, um, okay. but it is, you know, <clears throat> that's just to kind of really help to create, I feel like it created a level of comfort for everybody that mm. this is, you know, yes, this is a very sacred thing, um, but we also don't take ourselves too seriously. Mm -hmm. uh, so anyway, um, the high dose work requires a very, very different skill set, I think, and experience level. Um, and so 
while a lot of our community is trying, is kind of moving towards that higher dose work, uh, we're trying to lay that foundation uh, in the relationship building. We have a lot of ways that we come together. I love how you uh, uh, speak to the power of Zoom, which is something that has really taken me by surprise. Our Sunday services, which are an hour and a half, uh, have people consistently say, you know, we're up mm-hmm. to close to hundred people per service. Now mm. uh, people consistently say they are not exposed to these kinds of conversations mm. uh, anywhere. And that, you know, how, how it helps them. Mm. No one's saying specifically regulate their nervous system, but that is entirely mm. what's going on moving yeah. forward. Now what's interesting there is being able to juxtapose the virtual work with the in-person work, because there is a degree of, I think separation that's still a part of the virtual work but it's been surprisingly powerful. So Mm. we do a ton of different virtual workshops that are led by members or by myself or my wife. Um, And then we do quite a few in-person events here in Louisville. We've also got communities forming in Maine and Washington state and Mm. really all around the country, but primarily in those two other locations Mm. where folks are gathering more and doing in-person kind of community work there. So uh, yeah, it's a, it, it's a, it's a tiger by the tail. Uh, yeah. I have no idea yeah. what I'm doing and just mm-hmm. trying to manage personalities, including mine, you know, and yeah. I think it's, I think it is relevant to kind of speak to that. The majority of us who come to psychedelics are coming for relief from some kind of mm. ailment. If it's a neurodivergency mm. or if it's a physical ailment or whatever trauma, trauma, mm. whatever that might be. And so, Growing these kinds of communities um, has a is a there's a, there's a challenge special, to it. There's something really special to it. Yeah, and, and I recognize like myself being like I, I this is not it's not to speak critically of anybody. I love our community, I, and I recognize that, and I try to be very upfront as a reluctant leader um, that <clears throat> I have got my own personality challenges that I'm mm. you know working through. And I have grown so much through community that I can just, and I seeing that in, in our community, like that's the banner that I'm waving is community. Yes. The mushrooms are great. Yeah. Right. Right. It's the community that's really, really I I think that's so, I love that Eric, because that is, that's the, um, that's the kind of recognition I think that this this movement will come to will will yep. be like there's this excitement about the molecule, right? It's like, yep. oh wow, psilocybin, LSD, you know, MDMA, look, it's a breakthrough. And 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 that's awesome. You know, mm-hmm. I love mm-hmm. that we get to have this beautiful new molecule that therapists and physicians get to kind of have at their, you know, in the in their tool belt to be able to use and for, for all sure. sorts of I love it. And that's not going to heal our communities. That is not, it's not just about if we can just dose enough people. We tried that in the sixties, right? Mm -hmm. I think I read one time it was like, I think 10 million people tried LSD, something Mm -hmm. like that. They estimated 10 million people tried it during the sixties and seventies. And yet it, it didn't change culture, right? Yeah, it did at some level, but Mm -hmm. we're still in the mess we are in, you know, 50, 60 years later. So the, the, the issue is not just, if we can just get everyone to do psychedelics, it'll, everything will be perfect. There'll be no more wars. And it's, we're really looking at how do we build communities that are thriving uh, and, and, and that, because as we know, the fastest growing kind of groups are those that call themselves spiritual, but not religious, right? Mm -hmm. The people that say I'm done with organized Mm -hmm. religion. 
I want, but I'm not done with spirituality. And so what do we do then, right? How do you create these communities that have a a, a sense of eldership still? They're not just a bunch of people doing whatever they want. Mm -hmm. There's a sense of kind of accountability and structure and kind of regularity and meeting. I mean, that's really what church is, right? It's Mm -hmm. it's trying to create that, the the structure that our, our nervous systems, our embodied natures need. And so that's what's going to be coming on the scene now is 100%. how do we create communities in different cities and places that are open to plant medicine work that are not, we're going to reject those people, but see it as a tool to help build community. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of where I'm, I'm kind of landing is that, mm-hmm. uh, is that we can give people the tools. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's this group work for me that begins the, the first step toward what it means to be seen in a small group of people. And then if we can translate that from these small groups into maybe a larger venue that maybe meets three, four times a year in person, Mm. um, and and then it has these little online communities that are starting to form, um, and that might be a way forward, you know, because this digital technology is not going away. It's just going to get better and better. Uh, and so we've got to somehow take these ancient ideas of spirit, of the divine, of God, and mix it in with the new technologies of digital engagement and online communication like this and interactive. Like, I mean, that's what we could be streaming live and have people interacting. That's brand new. That's television with a two-way, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's interesting for people. And so I think that if we could bridge this conversation just like you're doing uh at sanctuary and i'm trying to do with gathering and nexus and some of these other places we can start creating conversations about what does a renewed spiritual community look like that draws maybe from the best of judaism and the best of christianity and the Mm -hmm. best of you know islam and 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 all these others and says we're not we're not afraid of bringing these in because the true litmus test is does this create thriving does this move love forward in people's lives? Are marriages getting deeper? Are parents finding more connection and resilience? You know, that's what good looks like. Mm-hmm. If we just do a psychedelic mm-hmm. and we just it has no downline effect into culture and society and in real marriages and families and people finding connection and community, then it's just just it's just like a, a sounding gong to quote Saint Paul, right? <laughs> you could have the gifts of tongues of men and angels, right? He's saying you could speak in the heavens, you could t- have these ecstatic experiences, but if you do not have love, you are a sounding gong. It's just a gong in someone's ear. It's not actually translating into real lived experience. Mm-hmm. That's what we need: tangible, real kind of communities where people can have these altered state experiences feel connected and heard and then actually get involved and find, you know, friendships and develop ways of, of moving their life forward in partnership with other people. Yeah. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I think a big part of what I'm seeing in uh, the love of community that was not really taught to me through my family or my religion is that when we have disagreements, when there is friction mm. that we continue to come together. Wow. Yeah. Because that yeah. was the uh, the otherness that you spoke of from the start is what we were taught. I believe in my experience so in, in religion as it stands is that, well, if someone doesn't believe the way that you do, mm-hmm. then you go the other direction. And 
one of the most beautiful things that I've seen in the psychedelic work, particularly, in, you know, in Jamaica, we saw this all the time because we just have, you know, every two weeks groups of 15 strangers come down and you would see people from every walk of life, every political perspective, a variety of religions, and they were all coming to this, granted, most of them to quote the molecule, but mm. through that experience, they began to see that they were just like each other and that all these different like kind of, you know, forms of identity that we attach to, it's just baggage that we mm. pick up. It's ideological baggage that we pick up along the way, and it's not really representative of who we are. Mm. Uh, and, and that's just been the most powerful aspect of the psychedelic experience for me has been continuing to remind me that I have no idea what's going on mm. and that all of my judgments and all my, even it, that's all it is. It's my internal view that's based mm. on previous experience. And if I can continue to rewire that, unlearn that, then I can be, I can mm. show up for everybody better, yeah. including myself. Mm. You know, so I, I, there was this conversation on LinkedIn the other day I saw where, you know, people were talking about how, um, you know, the just the, the the research hasn't clearly shown that the group psychedelic experience is where it's at. And it, like, again, this goes back to us. Mm. Are we really are we really honoring uh, the traditions where these medicines came from? Because they were a group experience and there was mm -hmm. there was a reason for that. It was, you know, so I, it's just funny to me that we we wait for the permission of hmm. um, research medical communities to authenticate what we know through thousands and thousands of years of human experience. Uh, so yeah, I get a, I get a great joy in hmm. um, I feel like doing, doing this in a way that not only harkens back to the origins, but that just like what you're saying, and this is really my, the big, big passion that I have is that, it's in a way that it is going to create, uh, like you're saying, downstream or ripple effects into spirituality of the culture mm, and where yeah. we are affecting major change on a cultural level. And just, I guess the last thing I'd say on this is, well, you know, the work that we did in Jamaica was, was, it was massive. I mean, it was the first psilocybin mushroom retreat in mm. the world. And now Jamaica's full of psilocybin mushroom mm. retreats. I feel so confident that mm. groups like yours and group like sanctuary are going to shift the culture so much more drastically than any of that work ever could mm. have. So uh, you're doing really, really, mm. really important work. And I have massive respect mm. for you stepping out. Of, and a, you're doing it in a way that it, it's, not, it's not necessarily against the grain, but it's separate from what is, the current acceptable model. And so I have yeah. a oh, lot of respect. Thanks, Eric. You know, and it, it's really hard to be honest with you. And I'm just feeling like, man, it's um, <clears throat> people don't get what I'm trying to talk about yet. And mm -hmm. so this is a good conversation for me to hear again and, and to go, yeah, you know, because when, when I'm talking to 99% of the people in, you know, that I'm navigating in the psychedelic space, it's either, you know, it's like three sessions, you know, a dosing, three <laughs> sessions, and then out, let's go, you know, next next mm -hmm. one, and let's just kind of What's get your playlist? through this. What's your playlist? What kind of yeah, playlist? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, these are the conversations, and I'm like, oh, I'm not saying that, that the therapeutic model isn't For sure. important. There's I, value, 100%. Totally. Value. And, you know, my best friends are therapists. My wife's a therapist. Like, 
I live in around this world of, of, of therapy and that's how it's coming in. And yet what I'm realizing is that that is not what the human need really is. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> this is just a tiny stopgap therapy is, mm -hmm. right? Yes. What the, oh the human need is for connection and belonging yes. where I don't have to pay someone $200 an hour to be heard and to be seen. That's absurd. So that is, that's you. not sustainable. I'm going to ask you, and I, I feel like this is a hard question to ask. I feel like it's, it, God, I, I, I have to ask it though. Yeah. Do, do you feel, because I, I feel there's so much truth in what you said that we need therapy because our human condition is not being met. Our yes. needs are not yes. being met. Do yes. you feel in any way, have you felt that particularly the psychedelic therapy community has felt threatened by your work? I, I would say yes. I would say that. Um, how can we do? How how can we? Yeah. How can we bring the same level of comfort, the same level of trust that we try to bring to the people that we're working with who mm -hmm. are new to psychedelics? How do we bring that to the psychedelic community? Because I think there's there is a valid reason mm -hmm. to feel threatened because this is the future model. But yeah. like everything, like every new paradigm, rather than resisting the inevitable how can we encourage folks to embrace it and and help because the therapeutic like you're talking about yeah. the resilience model right that sounds like an incredible methodology to bring into psychedelic work mm -hmm. so like bringing these two worlds together in a in a way where everybody feels like we're just, we're helping each other. I'm curious if you have thoughts yeah. on that. Yeah. You know, it's it, what a great question. And I think it's, you're the first ones who've asked that. Um, and, and that, that feels really good because it's, it's a tension I've felt. Um, you know, it, <clears throat> the, most of the people coming into this scene are therapists, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, these are the people that are going, Hey, I've been doing, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy for 20 years and I keep seeing the same clients for 10 years. And it's just this revolving door. And in one sense, they have to be honest. I mean, there's, this is where they have to get really honest in that mm -hmm. that model keeps them in business mm -hmm. because it's this continual ro revolving door of mm -hmm. like, yes, we help people, you know, we, mm -hmm. they do, you know, it's not like mm -hmm. they don't, but mm -hmm. in the long term, moving PTSD, big trauma, they can't, they just, mm -hmm. they know it. They don't, their tools can't go that big. Right. Um, big kind of, uh, treatment resistant depression they can't move those needles, right? Um, eating disorders, they just haven't been able to crack that because it's such an ingrained thing, right? Now, these molecules, these systems allow you to open up the brain and open up new pathways so that you can have a whole reorientation towards self, right? Mm -hmm. Now, that's beautiful. Now, what I would love to see is that, that therapists begin to ju jump on board with this model. And those mm -hmm. that are doing that in the gathering model, the mm -hmm. therapists that have been, have been, that we've brought on board, they love it because what they realize is like, I don't, I'm not the one who has to fix this person. Mm -hmm. I'm no. up here and they're down here. Mm -hmm. um, that's a lot of stress. Now yeah. you feel a sense of obligation for the client that comes to you. You're like, I don't know if I can fix your marriage and I'll do my best. Right. And you have all these caveats. This model says you are not the healer. Mm -hmm. They are, you are their yeah. inner healing intelligence mm -hmm. will heal themselves. Amen. You need to get out of the way. Amen. You need to create the space for them to drop into their own connection to their own heart. And you do that by coming into the community and being vulnerable and sharing your yes. shit with yes. them. Mm. But when they do that, they have this, they, they tell me, they said, Peg, 
<clears throat> your model is saying that I'm a participant in this group. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which means I have to reveal my stuff, and mm -hmm. I've been trained my entire life to oh. just be vulnerable enough so that my client trusts me, but not too much that it, uh, that it upsets them because they want me to have my shit together mm -hmm. so that I can give them the answers to their life, right? And you're saying you're going to upset that by, I can't do that, and oh. but when they do, wow. I had yeah. one... One therapist, she came and said, I've got three clients I want to bring in a group and I want to facilitate you know, with it. She goes, I'm scared. I'm scared that somehow I'm going to get found out my licensing body because somehow not just because of the psychedelics, but because I'm entering into a different kind mm -hmm. of relationship mm -hmm. with my client now. Mm -hmm. I'm revealing my life. That feels awkward. God, you know. Yeah. And so after the 12 weeks and we had the ceremony, she said, that was single-handedly the best experience I've ever had with clients in my entire life. How can how did we miss this model? Why do <laughs> I have to be the expert? I'm just a oh. fellow person on the road here, right? To me, that's what good is going to look like. Yeah. So those therapists that want to jump into this model and try it and try to say maybe we could can change how mental health uh, services are being delivered. And it becomes this inclusive community where we're all moving together toward health and wholeness, not just I'm the expert and you're down here. So there's something really profound in that shift. Oh, man, I, I have never heard anyone else speak to that directly. But it is something that is such an intentional part of, of how I've worked for over for years. And I think that's why I've been able to be as helpful because I wasn't trained in that therapeutic model. I was always just the guy that's like, I just have more experience with mushrooms, right? I am mm -hmm. working through my shit. I've got crazy divorces. I've got, you know, crazy family history and blah. And, and this hierarchy that we have created, mm. even in, like in terms of helping each other, it's, mm. it's a disservice because we do not help each. I, yes. You can use the metaphor of we lifting each other up, but I feel like we all Ram Dass said it best. We're mm. all just walking each other home. Yeah. And I feel like if we can, embody that in our wellness communities, then we can all get better. Because like Gilbert Mate says, I've heard him talk about how caretakers are some of the sickest people out there. Yep. Because yep. they're not they're, they're they're not able to take care of themselves. They're excluded. Yep. They're the yep. other. And that's yep. something that I felt significantly in Jamaica and I determined that I would it would never be a part of my work. It's it's, it's still a challenge with sanctuary because no matter what, you know, I got a podcast. So all of a sudden people think that mm -hmm. I'm like I know more than anybody else. And I do have a lot of experience with mushrooms and I can help, you know, in a lot of different ways, but it's just so important. I feel like mm -hmm. that we, particularly in these communities where vulnerability is key to collective yeah. healing. Yeah. What a great line, Eric. <clears throat> vulnerability is key to collective healing. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, that should be the title of this podcast, right? Because <laughs> this, I mean, of what we're talking about mm -hmm. here, because that's at the core. Um, but most, you know, e yeah, most people in the healing profession have never been in a safe, vulnerable mm -hmm. community. Mm -hmm. It's they've, you know, they maybe tried to be vulnerable in a church or whatever, and they were kicked out mm -hmm. or they were shamed yep. or they were yep. judged. And so and even in our family structures, you know, we try to be vulnerable and, you know, got slapped down or said you're not important or whatever. So we don't have, we need to almost like re-experience what it feels like to be in a safe community yeah. that values you and says, this is a place you can be safe. You can be honest and we are not kicking you out or shaming you. Yep. Uh, we are going to walk alongside you. And uh, so 
those therapists that have come in and experienced it, they are like, wow, I, I love it. There's part of me, my ego is threatened because I don't get the accolades mm -hmm. because I'm just one of the people. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, the people in the group realize it wasn't the facilitator that was the magic. It was the whole group mm -hmm. that was the magic. Yep. Oh, God. That's, the that's different. Yeah. So fucking amazing, though. I mean, yeah. God, sitting back, you know, we're, we're still working towards more of the group work here in, uh, in Kentucky, where we're at in particular. I mean, we're still significantly underfunded. Um, and you know, that's, that's a process, but it, I mean, only in the sense that we're not able to afford the property that would really serve our mm -hmm. community well here locally. Right. Oh, um, and that's, that's created some challenge. We do have some properties that we're working with, uh, that are more like, you know, we do camping retreats and whatnot. I would love to have, I mean, we've started this, uh, uh, sacred mushroom seminary and I envision that mm -hmm. eventually being like, a, you know, many acres, with mm. brick and mortar and like I, I call it, it's going to be the, 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 uh, uh, Hogwarts of psychedelics. Right. Ah. And, I, and I truly see that in the future. And I think that that's what <coughs> sacred. Mm -hmm. I love that. I got a sacred mushroom seminary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh baby. I want to come there, man. I want to come teach. I want to build it. Yeah. Help be yeah. a part of it, man. I mean, we should do a version. I mean, we couldn't be in two more polar opposite places in North America. You're in the right. kind of the southeast. I'm in the northwest of you right. know Vancouver, Canada, on the west coast, and you're over here in Louisville. Uh, so maybe there's uh, you know a, a, a way for us to work together and partner on some events and um, do some well, activities together. And I'm uh, actually having a conversation. Yeah. I don't know if you know Awake uh, Media. No, uh, Lakshmi. I can't remember her last name, but. Uh, hmm. Uh, it's a kind of a psychedelic media outlet, a uh, really interesting lady that runs it. And she and I are having some preliminary discussions around a psychedelic religious leader summit. And initially yeah. probably just do a virtual thing for starters, uh, and then move towards something physical at mm. time. So I absolutely, you're on, you're, you're oh, on the man. invitation list. <laughs> oh, it'd be, it'd be, I'd love it. You know, and I, I, I think there's so much potential here when you talk about, uh, you know, creating a, a kind of a seminary, you know, around that. I think this model that we're doing is such a beautiful model mm -hmm. to teach, you know, mm -hmm. spiritual leaders to say, here's something you don't need to be, I don't have a PhD in anything. You just learn this process mm -hmm. about how to become vulnerable and drop in um, to create, you know, the, the model itself is that has the structure behind it to be able to replicated anywhere it's a turnkey kind of here it is out of the box you can run a run a group in this way and it works mm -hmm. you know so mm -hmm. i mean man eric i'd love to have you and your wife in a group man and just mm -hmm. let show you kind of behind the curtains about here's how we do group work and take what you can that works for you but would yeah. love to kind of partner on some of this stuff with you what, what kind of dosing how are you working with yeah. dosing <clears throat> so we use three and a half grams of golden teacher okay. uh we use it in a tea uh, steep it with some lemon and, um, and so you're, we're kind of getting a, yeah, getting a tea. Um, and that, that dose is, is big enough to give us really big mystical experiences, but not too big that it disrupts the, the communal experience of when everyone is tripping at the same time. We have four space holders, uh, always have a, a you know, therapist and, and, and trained space holders with us and mm -hmm. eight people journeying uh, in the space. Okay. And that, nice. that allows us to all um, those eight individuals to, as they're coming off of peak after about hour two, we actually, 
you know, as they're coming back, we actually bring them together and they're kind of connecting because they had this deep sense of trust and love with one another that they built up for eight weeks mm -hmm. and they all know each other's intentions and they're all there to support. And so we use the power of that altered state experience to actually allow them to connect with one another and witness each other in that space. And then we spend, you know, we have dinner together and we have a, uh, you know, we have the, sometimes some of the retreats spend the night, one or two nights. Some are just day. They come at 8.30 in the morning and leave at six at night. Uh, and so there's different, different kind of mm -hmm. models, but, but yeah, that's the kind of dosage we're working with. And that's mm -hmm. the, for us, that's the sweet spot where you're not, it's not too big that they dysregulate people and you have a lot of cleanup, but it still gives a lot, a three and a half, uh, when you're in a group feels like about five when you're on your own. It so. is really, I'm glad you brought that up because it is, that is a phenomenon that can be observed. Uh, I'm yep. not sure how we quantify it yet, but the, the energy of the individuals intensifies yep. the experience hundred percent yep. and people have never experienced it have no idea what i'm talking mm -hmm. about you know mm -hmm. exactly what i'm mm -hmm. talking about it's almost like a 2x mm -hmm. the energy mm -hmm. of people with shared mm -hmm. love mm -hmm. and intentionality and connection the more you prep and develop that container of yep. trust and love the deeper everyone's nervous system can go Yep. It's just it's just nervous system regulation that we're doing, and yep. when it's regulated, you come in and you're ready to be fully open. Wow, it feels like well, unbelievable. I think what what something that has been slowly revealed to me over time, or at least as I'm understanding it currently, is that in that nervous system regulation, that it allows for an openness in the energetic field, the broader auric field, um, that can potentiates a balancing. And so I was interested, God, there's so much, I don't know where to really go with this, but what, what working with groups at mm. high doses over extended periods of time, I have seen um, that there, the intelligence of the energetic field of the group will shift as mm. the week or weeks yep. go on. Yep. And so that, Maybe someone, it's so interesting to see how in one ceremony, certain people will kind of get the goods, right? And then if you do another ceremony, I've seen where those who didn't, they start to have opening. And I think that there's, there's a, a who knows what all is going on there. A huge part of it is that, um, that opening, that trusting, that vulnerability that allows for some, some movement. But I think that there is also the collective organism that is humanity, mm. right? Mm -hmm. When allowed, just like the individual organism, when allowed to regulate, will find balance. And so within yeah. that communal context, over periods of time, that balance will also occur. Mm. It, I, I yeah. have been, I have to say, I have been, I feel like I'm one of the most privileged human beings on the planet at times, being able to have witnessed the number of um, high dose experiences over extended periods of time with just amazing. I mean, everybody's amazing. That's something that also comes out of this work is like you, 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 you go into ceremony with folks and you realize how absolutely incredible mm the human is yeah yeah you know? there's yeah and that's the div the divinity comes the out divine, from them, yes. no matter how broken yes. they may come yes. and, and kind of present 
behind that is kind of the, in the in internal family systems language from Dick mm-hmm. Schwartz that mm-hmm. the true self is undamaged, un, un, you know, has not been affected by trauma. And it's our, these, these, this community model and the substance can pull back the clouds so that the true shite light can shine from their being. And when that happens, it's, it's the most amazing experience to be, to be around. It really uh, it, is. You know, it just, I'm bawling almost every time we have a retreat. Mm-hmm. I, I just have not, yeah. it's like, I've never seen miracles like this. I'm seeing Absolutely. hundreds and hundreds yep. of what feels like a miracle. Like yep. you've had, I've had guys, you know, I had one gentleman in his late seventies want to be in a group and, and, uh, and I was like, okay, let's do this. And he had never done psychedelics before. And, mm-hmm. and at the end of it, you know, after the end of 12 weeks and the experience, he said, Peg, for 50 years, I've dealt with trauma from mm-hmm. my past. I've been in therapy for 20, 30 years. Nothing touched it. Mm-hmm. This experience, I can sleep for the first time. I wake up with joy for the first time in my life. I feel alive. I feel like I can reach out to other people. I no longer have to live this isolated, shamed life because I think I'm broken. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm divine. Like, how, how the hell does that happen? You know, it's just it's shocking. Mm-hmm. For these people, it's it's literally a before and after kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And once you're once you're around that, you're like, oh, I, that's what I got to do with my life. <laughs> right. you know? What else am I going to do? Yeah, yeah. What what else will come yeah. close to the meaning that I that that can give to humans? But but you know, help them find their true self again. Help them reengage in their marriage. Help them. You know, uh, had a firefighter. You know, had had so much trauma coming out of this that his marriage is in shambles. He's, you know, he acts in these violent, aggressive ways with the smallest thing from his kids and he hates himself for it. Like, why did I do that? You know? And after this experience of 12 weeks, his wife said to me, the way he, I said, what have you noticed? And and she said, it's the way that he touches me when he walks by in the kitchen. Oh man, it makes me cry. I know because that's, that's where you see it is in the, the little acts. It's in the little, it's in the small changes, and then you start to see these avalanches occur yes. from these little yes. pebbles that start to yeah. shift. Yeah, I mean, our you you and I are we're in this work because we, we there's a crisis on our planet. Mm-hmm. There's a meaning crisis, and there's a connection crisis. Mm-hmm. People are isolated, alone, and they are looking for meaning and looking for belonging. Mm-hmm. And I believe that we are at this time in human history in 2024. There's people like you and I, and there's thousands of us on, our, mm-hmm. on this planet mm-hmm. are saying, we, we want to help. We want to create communities again that can help people thrive, to connect, to heal. And we've got a beautiful substance that can help us with this. Mm-hmm. This sacred mushroom is here for our time right now, mm-hmm. and we can do it safely, and we can do it effectively to help not just heal trauma, but build creativity and joy and mm-hmm. play mm-hmm. and help us unlock our, our, our stuckness around sexuality uh, in the West. And so there's so much potential. And I know that's what, that what's, what drives you and I. So that's kind of why I'm, I'm on this planet. How much, how much time you got? Cause there, I, there's, I've got about five more minutes. Got a call in. in oh, all right. All right. Well, we're going to have to have another conversation. Okay, let's do there's it. So much real quick. Are you, do you have, what knowledge do you have of the, um, and of the evidence of sacred mushroom use in very early Christianity. Oh, baby. Yeah. You right, just <laughs> opened up the door. 
was about to say how much time you got. Okay, you know what? Let's let's. Uh, this has been a big pursuit of mine. I mean, I I read uh, Brian Murarescu's book, mm. The Immortality Key, which changed my life. I mean, as a as a, a you know a guy who had gone through seminary and done a lot of work and and has you know I I I, I learned Hebrew and Greek in my seminary days so I mm. could understand these ancient texts. And here he was talking about the what they call the pagan continuity, the the idea that psychedelics have come down through these different, you know, Egypt, India, whatever, into Greece, uh, and then really started in the Eleusinian mysteries for two thousand years, and that that Greek tradition was alive and well in the Greek-speaking people of the early church, and that they used sacred mushrooms in their Eucharist, and they're finding as they scrape these vessels now and using this new archaeobotany, they're finding residue of LSD, which is the ergot mushroom mm -hmm. that was available to those people mm -hmm. at that time. Mm -hmm. So this summer, in August, I flew to Athens and hired, oh. uh, got connected to an archaeologist, and I got to spend two days in Eleusis, oh, uh, wow. understanding that, taking pictures and video oh. and really... so. You, you just open up a huge thing and you're yeah, like, you want to talk right. about this? I got a lot to say about all this. Right, yeah. All right. All right. All right. Well, since we just, just got a couple minutes left, tell us what Psilocybin says to you, Peg, and then we'll end it on that till the next meeting. Yeah, I think uh, Psilocybin says to me, and we said it in a line here, uh, and it really resonated, is that we Psilocybin tells me that we heal when we are known by other people. Mm -hmm. And so... This is the call for me is I want to create places that people can be known and heard and seen. And that's where healing will happen. And psilocybin, it will be a beautiful tool to come alongside that process. So that's what it says to me. We Amen. heal when we're known. Oh, Peg, I send you a massive hug from Kentucky, my brother. Mm. I, I already feel like we're, yeah, we're, we got work to do together. Oh, man. Well, thank you so much, Eric, for your heart and your passion for this work. And uh, yeah, let's schedule another one of these and keep this conversation going because this is this is an important one. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Oh, man. All the best to your work. And I look forward to talking with you in the future. Thanks, Eric. All the best.